So there was breakfast vinoiserie course, and then there was like candies and cookies, and then there was ice creams, and then plated desserts, and then savory, and then breads. I mean, looking back at it now, I was like trying way too hard. Even still, Ignacio was like, he's like, yeah, that was, I've never seen anything like that before. And you got the job. <laughs> yeah, I got the Jobs job. Job's yours. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm Editor-in-Chief Matt Rodbard, here with Senior Editor Anna Hiesel. Today on the show, we have Natasha Pikowitz, the pastry chef at Cafe Altro Paradiso and Flora Bar. Later on, we're talking to Athena Calderon of Ice Wound and Kristen McGlory from Food 52. Matt, what did you and Natasha talk about? Natasha Pikowitz, I really wanted to have her on the podcast because her background is so interesting. She did never went to pastry school, and she really didn't plan to be a pastry chef, even though she's a remarkable pastry chef. She was a journalist to start out. She was uh, writing about food and music, two topics I've personally written about. She was also living in Montreal, which was kind of cool. What did she have to say about Montreal? Is that kind of where she learned how to make pastry? Definitely. She she started her restaurant career in Montreal, making pastry, working at a few cool places. She wrote a column for Serious Eats about Montreal and Canadian pizza. What is Montreal pizza like? I've never had pizza in Montreal. I think the the high-level assessment is it's not very good. Here's Matt talking to Natasha. Natasha, welcome to the Taste Podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to have you here. Um, So you work a lot of mornings. You're a pastry chef. Yes. um, But it seems with that, you get the benefit of actually kind of having a normal evening at home. My question is... Do you cook at home? (laughs) I do. Yeah, rigorously. Um, You know, I live alone and I think that informs a lot of how I take care of myself when I'm not at work. And, you know, when we're at work, we're tasting food all day long, Um, you know, pastry. So, you know, your palate kind of gets a little bit fatigued. So I love eating out and supporting friends who work at other places. But when I get home, I'm absolutely cooking everything for myself. That's amazing. So you're actually going home and are you actually running to the bodega and picking a few ingredients and run, you know, putting something <laughs> together like that? I guess our bodega runs in there. But, you know, we're going I'm going to the farmer's market at Union Square, I'm going to grocery stores, I'm going to friends shops. And sometimes I'll pick things up at work and kind of like sneak them home, too. And you know, just want to have as delicious things as possible in my home, just like at work. Yeah. And you get to cook savory a lot, right? You get to, like you're making dinner. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that we always try to think about in the restaurants is figure out how to break down that divide between savory and pastry. And a lot of things that I see with my pastry cooks or cooks, pastry cooks in general is this reluctance to sort of engage with savory food. Like somehow that seems intimidating or strange. But And one way that I am trying to push people to be more comfortable um, cooking for their peers is, you know, by doing things like family meal and, you know, just going for it and not being so worried about sticking to a recipe or following directions, which is one of the things that's comforting about doing pastry, but also figuring out how to incorporate, like, more improvisatory mm-hmm. like instincts into you so you know, do a lot of that cooking. in your home kitchen at home when you're yeah I, I don't bake at home yeah. I'm definitely <laughs> no pastry no baking no sweets at home at all like that I, I get enough of that work so so what did you make last in your home kitchen um okay well last Tuesday night so I guess that was two nights ago I brought home a loaf of sourdough bread from work um so I made a big sandwich honestly when it's this hot out you know it's like I just had tons of vegetables from the market, 
and I just, you know, stack them a couple inches high and just... What's the condiment? Because I think with sandwiches, you obviously need to break through from that really crusty, kind of boring inside with something with acid and with cream. What, what, what were you doing? Right. Well, the bread was a sourdough uh, loaf that I baked in a Pullman pan from the excellent Chris Croner book, the Croner Burger cookbook that just came out. Shout out 10 Speed Press. Yeah. Right there. Yeah. We They sent us a copy before that came out and um, I've been baking from it and I had a loaf of this like super sticky sourdough uh, bread that we fermented for a few days. So I griddled that first, kind of grilled cheese style in butter to crisp up the outside, kind of bring it back to life. I baked it on like Friday or something. and But there's so much life to it. The dough is so hydrated. And then while it's still warm, like a ton of aioli that I had in my that I had in my fridge and it kind of absorbs it. Is that it. like lemon or is there herb in there? Uh, garlic. Yeah, a, a lot, lot of garlic. garlic. Yeah. yeah. And you said a lot of vegetables, yeah, vegetarian like, sandwich? I, you know, I love kind of hip I'm from Southern California so I'm like all about piling on more hippie vegetables I had like radish sprouts um, avocado some like really amazing Persian cucumbers from the market like half a tomato that I brought home from work um, I think it was just a veggie sandwich actually there's this like meme going around in food media that like the hippie sandwich is back but come on it never left right I mean for me I just want like things that have tons of that like kind of like verdant crunch you know i i don't want anything too heavy especially when it's summertime like this so i mean you're we're speaking about food you're so fluent it's obvious that you think a lot about food but you also write a lot about food and i wanted to have this conversation with you because you're not just a chef you're a you're a journalist I mean, you, you pause, but you are. I'm going to just say it. I tempted. <laughs> well, I read a lot of your work on Serious Eats recently. Oh, my God. Oh, no. You're, are no, you I love it. No, not no, at all. I love it. You were the Canadian pizza correspondent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I gave myself that title. I, I was think... like, this is my niche. Because um, I was just, you know, the thing about Montreal pizza that is so fascinating to me is obviously it's a province and, you know, it's a city in a province with such a incredibly rich and fascinating um, food culture sense of identity around food is so strong and one of the places where it falls like laughably short and I say this with love you know is the pizza and and you know when I moved to New York and I was just like oh my god there's good pizza everywhere even like the crappy pizza is like exquisite compared to Montreal so I kind of created this narrative where I was trying all of the pizza to sort of comparatively see how they were all bad in their own way and what they had in common. I love you wrote, a classic Montreal pizza is characterized by its excess of almost everything. Too much sauce, cheese, and topping, all haphazardly piled onto a thick, dense crust. I mean, that sounds pretty terrible. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds awful. But I think also, you know, the sense of um, pride and identity with being... Um, not just from Montreal, but like maybe being a Quebecer in Canada is sort of loving these things that are bad in a way. It's this perverse relationship. And I think part of it is, you know, the weather is so extreme up there and that there's this kind of um, love for kind of heavier, like gluttonous kind of the excess of it that is sort of fetishized almost. And that I mean, kind poutine, of carries over. for example, yeah. is fetishized. Yeah, poutine, smoked meat, like, I, you know, it's just these like... <sighs> Heavy things. So, so you're a freelance writer. You you were sitting on your la- your sofa punching away at the laptop, making a living. I mean, tell me about that. Yeah, is that like? I mean, first of all, you know, one of the great things about where I am with my work now is being able to tap back into these more like writerly projects like the kind of things where we get to speak or the kind of projects where I'm able to write feels really rewarding to be able to incorporate that back into my life after you know 
starting off as a pastry cook and working like, you know, 60 or 70 hours a week and just not having time or the you know energy for it. Um, I went to university, studied English lit, wrote for my you know, college newspaper at Cornell, at Cornell yeah. did a ton of radio for many years. I was at WVBR. And then when I moved to Montreal, I was doing um, CKUT and really trying to like stay engaged with writing and, you know, arts journalism specifically, also within radio. I mean, both of my parents are academics. So I think, you know, my father's a historian. My mom is a fine artist. They both teach at a, you know, institution. And that always seemed to me like, kind of inevitable but you know at a certain point I I almost serendipitously got a job baking in Montreal and it was so it engaged me in such a different way like the practice of being on my feet and like being around people and not being alone in my bedroom like Mm -hmm. typing away and feeling really isolated and the idea of like you know writing as a discipline where there's no end in sight almost and how frustrating that felt to me as somebody who was young and didn't really understand what I was doing but then going to pastry and sort of mastering techniques and making things and seeing the product and like it was so tangible and it's so real and you know that shift for me made this instant connection. I love the connection between between writing and journalism and and pastry. There's really a clear connection there. I want to go back to your time as a journalist and now that you are on the other side and you're being reviewed and right. you're being written about all the time. Um do you have a perspective there? Like, you know, you've been on deadline. You know how sometimes writers struggle to get words out and then sometimes we put out mediocre work and we all do it. <laughs> do you have a little bit of empathy towards a journalist who maybe doesn't get that fact right about your pastry? Because I get a lot of this feedback from chefs like, man, they don't know what the fuck they're talking about. Right. These journalists. But do you, you, Ab- you are a journalist. Absolutely. I mean, I think I do have a lot of sensitivity for those that kind of discipline too and and I and I feel that also um with like food criticism or you know any kind of like writerly criticism and you know the the relationship between like a restaurant critic for example and being in a restaurant and being under that scrutiny and being reviewed and you know I I definitely love reading writing about food um, and always appreciate different kinds of perspectives. And I think when you're in the kitchen and you're like a chef or a restaurant owner or whatever, um, you, you tend it's harder for you to break outside of that perspective because all you think about is like yourself and all the work that you put into something. But I think it's really important to also understand what somebody else's experience is like and what they have to contribute and what they're noticing. So you haven't felt burned that often by journalists getting I mean, the narrative wrong? <laughs> I don't I don't personally feel like I've been misunderstood in that in that kind of way. And and I think it's also on me to make sure I'm cultivating relationships with people that feel really sincere in that, you know, if we're having a candid conversation, then, you know, I feel comfortable about putting that out there. I want to cut back to at, later on um, to to cookbooks and your thoughts on those. But first, let's talk about your work at Alter Paradiso and Flora Bar. I mean, I was just there uh, last weekend and I had the most amazing tart. Apricot Al- tart? Is that what's on right now? Ultra? Yeah, Flora. at Ultra. At Ultra? Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. So amazing. Yeah. How do you define your pastry? I feel like there's this narrative around you like you don't like sweet as much as you balance better, but I wanted to hear it from Definitely. you. Definitely. Well, I mean, when I came on to Matter House in at kind of like the end of 
2015, beginning of 2016. We opened Cafe Altro in February of 2016, um, and we all opened that place together. I think for me, the decision to come on to those places was almost exclusively because I wanted to work with Ignacio my chef, Ignacio, Ignacio Matos. Yeah. Right. And I like wanted to know everything that he knew. Like I wanted to understand how he tasted, what his palate was like, how he sort of assembled dishes. And part of the vision that I think that we share together is um, how, you know, his sensibility and his aesthetic can inform pastry, you know, because Estella, his first restaurant doesn't have a pastry chef formally. The chefs all work on dishes together. All of the savory cooks and the prep team execute them. Um, and he kind of deviated from that when he took me on. And part of that was, you know, down the line thinking about the Met Breuer and um, having an all day cafe, having a museum restaurant that was going to feed guests, you know, the whole day on. Um, and so I think that we always very consciously were trying to create dishes that felt like they were part of the whole narrative of the menu. And, you know, often I find like a disappointing pastry or dessert experience is when you have a, you know, some kind of dinner and then you have a dessert and you're like, what restaurant no, did this No connection from? whatsoever. Yeah, you're like... I. I'm like, this is like a coming from a different kitchen. I mean, sometimes there literally are different kitchens, though, right? I mean, right. Like on different floors sure. in some restaurants. Exactly. I mean, when I baked at Marlon Sons, we were on the um, second floor. So the restaurant was on the ground floor. The cooks and the chef worked in the basement. And then we were two more flights of stairs above that. We were on the same level as their, like, you know, HR nook or whatever. And, you know, and people joked. They were like, oh, the pastry ivory tower. And, you know. I found that really like alienating, you know, and I found that, you know, to be so far away from the rest of the team, from the guests, from the rest of the people that you work with. And, you know, we wanted to create desserts that felt like, oh, yeah, I'm going to have like this crudo and this octopus and this pasta and this bread and this salad and then this like, you know, tart that you had. And, and then it feels cohesive and that you feel like you're in one restaurant Everybody was thinking about all these dishes in the same way. And... It's a pretty limited menu too, in a good way. It's very edited down. I feel like you're not giving me a million options, and I love that. I love the I love the the frozen desserts too. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think simplicity is is challenging to execute. Oh my gosh, so challenging, so effortless. But is the idea? But you know, the amount of work that goes into making something that seems deceptively simple, like taste and feel incredible, is like you know something that you know we think about every day. So you sound like. You were really determined to work with Ignacio. So tell me, like, how did you get the gig? And I want to know, I know there's always a tryout phase. You have to cook a few dishes. What was that like? I I still tell this story all the time because it was so hilarious and scary. But um, basically, um, you know, I did a tasting for Ignacio and his team. Um, And, you know, I think anyone at a certain chef level is doing this as like their on-the-fly interview, and my tasting was at Estella because none of the spots were open yet. And I think, you know, typically I've now have been on the other side of these tastings and have, you know, eaten dishes that people are trying out on us and getting feedback or whatever. But for him, I – and this was, you know, all part of why I wanted to work with him is that I'm somebody, you know, I didn't go to culinary school, um, that where I need my teachers, I need mentors, I need people that I work with to play that role to me. And that's, you know, where I choose to work is always driven by the people that are there. So I was like, 
recognize Ignacio as like a potential kind of mentor figure, but because I had no sense of editing, like I, I don't think I understood how to present something that was kind of tight and succinct and like edited. So he was like, yeah, come to Estella, do a tasting. Um, Super casual. <laughs> yeah. Just do a tasting. And 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 the way that it works is you kind of cook food or prepare food on the fly for, you know, a group of people. Do you use the mise en place there, like basically what they have I sent in? over a giant um, list oh. of things that I thought I was going to need. And then I brought things with me. So a lot of what I was doing is I was kind of like – spinning ice cream and baking things off and assembling things and putting things together and kind of plating them. And I brought a lot of things that were already finished, but I'd separated them into like courses. So there was sort of a breakfast, like venoiserie course. And then there was like candies and cookies. And then there was ice creams and then plated desserts and then savory and then breads. I mean, looking back at it now, I was like trying way too hard. I couldn't, I think what it would have been a stronger statement would have been to maybe pick one good thing from each course instead of like the seven or eight things because they were so overwhelmed and even still Ignacio was like he's like yeah that was I've never seen anything like that before and you got the job <laughs> yeah, I got the job's job. yours and and when the tasting was done I'd spent all these hours trying to hit all these deadlines and then the whole because I don't they had never had a tasting with the pastry chef before so the turnout for the tasting was very high. There were like 12 people in the dining room because they were like, oh, we can smell like the you know peanut butter cookies or whatever. So you do the breads. I mean, I when I was at Altero recently, there's there was this really amazing spread that went with the bread. Oh, yeah, yeah. We, we actually, we source our bread from Saragina okay, okay. in Brooklyn, a great bakery that we love and was part of the bake sale. Um, but yeah, we just, we try to like kind of take it to the next what place. was in that you know it's it's a whipped mascarpone with um ricotta and then really delicious uh olive oil and then some balsamic balsamic so i was like either like a, a honey or there was like is a very 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 yeah. tart balsamic uh-huh. so oh. good there's just like this is just an example of so much that goes into the restaurant of, of your caliber like just thinking about the spread and it's not just really good butter which you can find anywhere in right. new york it's three components ricotta and mascarpone, it's or the sorry, mascarpone. Devils in the details. You know, I think we want, we're trying to create an experience that feels sort of subtle, but it's full of love and care and details. And even with something like that, it's like I don't have the bandwidth in the kitchen to be baking all that bread for service. So we're trying to figure out a way to elevate, you know, what we are sourcing and bringing in. So Floor Bar is in the Matt Brewer. Mm-hmm. And do you get to see the shows? Oh, absolutely. And we are always pushing the cooks and the team to engage with the museum, which is so important. Like, you come to work every day and you don't know what's going on up there. It's like, and the museum is such a manageable size, too. It's, you know, you could kind of see the whole thing in an hour and a half or an hour. Um, So, and with our Met IDs, one of the best perks is, like, I'll see how many museums I can get into for free using my Met ID, and I have not yet to be said no to. Oh, that's So what's what's, a couple questions about working at a museum um, I mean, what's the crowd like? Like, who's coming into your your restaurant? It must be a really interesting crowd. Yeah, it it is. It's very different from the kind of crowds that we see at Altro and Estella. But we're also really grateful to be somewhere like the Upper East Side. And I think at night, um, when the museum is closed, our bread and butter is really more of the community. And there is a neighborhood there, you know. I think we tend to think of the Upper East Side as, like, museums and Madison Ave and, like, you know, this and that. But we have we have a great 
um, community of regulars of people who live around this around that area and come in. And then during the day, yeah, it's a lot of museum guests wander downstairs and want like a cheeseburger. Or they want like lobster dumplings or they want, <laughs> you know, tarts or whatever. Is there a show that you've seen there that just sticks out in your head? I'm putting you on the spot here. Well, the Carrie James Marshall show obviously uh-huh. blew everybody away. Um, and that was really moving. And, it, and, you know, it was great to have it there for so long. Um, the Like Life show that's up currently, I think the the way that the um, the curation works at the Met Breuer is so unique because it's the Met's first um, museum dedicated solely to contemporary art, you know, because they have like obviously the Met Met and then like the Cloisters and then the Morgan Library. But, you know, to apply like a more radical approach to um, curating shows in the Met Breuer, it's a little bit more experimental. The Like Life show kind of juxtaposes, um, you know, eras that span hundreds and hundreds of years. And I think, you know, that's something that has been really fun for people to have you been able to collaborate with pastry and, and fine arts, studio arts? Well, we did a three-month-long collaboration with the uh, New York-based artist Simone Schubach um, with our Wifey Project. And she's an incredible um, you know, visual artist, ceramicist, uh, painter, like she does collages. And we she just came out with a book that we're in the middle of promoting. Um, And it was really fun to collaborate with her on pastry because one of her, I think it was her, uh, one of her final projects, her thesis she did when she was in art school was a series of ceramic cakes that she built by kind of, I think she built them all by hand with kind of more like surrealist details. Um, And so, you know, we looked at all those images together and, and I was like, oh, this is a chance for me to, you know, engage with the work outside of the restaurant. Maybe her style is a little bit more flamboyant. It's a little bit more like um, lush and, you know. I think of Salvador Dali and his cookbook. Do you, have you exactly. checked this out? Absolutely. Yeah, I think of surrealism and, and pastries. Yeah. Cool. We want to do a surrealist dinner, actually. So uh, we're, this is like something where, you know, Kind of so many for ideas. a rainy day, totally. Um, I want to switch gears. You you take a lot of walks, it seems, just in reading some of your press, and I I I, I love walks as well. You walk across the park when you uh, take the subway to work. So tell me about what was the last thing you were thinking about on one of these long walks? Because that's why we pretty much walk, right? We think we want to think about stuff. Um, I don't know. I I think I really look forward to that time as a space to sort of set myself up for the next place because you know we're thinking about so many things all the time and those messages will get mixed up or confused and I really need it now to kind of like prepare myself. I'll like write lists on my head and on paper and just sort of get myself ready for the next push. Just getting like prep ready for the service at hand. I'm just, you know, I'm just mentally trying to get in the zone because it's like when you're in work and you're in one place, it's, I really try to, you know, think about it in a singular way. And, and then when I leave that place, it takes me a minute to kind of, transition to the next thing we ask every guest on the taste podcast this question so what is your dream cookbook project to work on to author yourself to create i think i mean this is definitely something that i don't know most people probably think about all the time but i think for me i would want 
a book to encapsulate not just the kind of work that we do in that I do in the restaurant, but also the the kind of things that inform my life when I'm not at work too. And that's like what we were talking about earlier with the making a sandwich and and bringing bread home from work and figuring out how to like build something nourishing with like very little. I think um, also you know one of the concepts that I you know think about all the time is is resourcefulness and efficiency and also the idea of like invention coming from you know coming from something that maybe doesn't seem inspiring or that seems like trash or that seems like you mean an no example of a dish that might be considered trash um <laughs> that sentence <laughs> you uh, said it i love yeah. it it's so cool well it's like for example the tart that you had um you know we will slice and peel um, things like stone fruit for a tart. And then you still have peel, you still have the pits, you still have stones. So, you know, instead of throwing those things away, I'll like cover it with a, you know, inch of water and pull out, extract as much flavor from those things as possible and then reduce it into a glaze that goes on top of the tart. So, you know, and these things are kind of are just born out of necessity. I don't think they're, it's intentional. It's more like assessing or looking at something that you think maybe has no value, but actually like feels so satisfying to, you know, be able to use all of the parts of something. And I find that that relationship really manifests itself between savory and pastry, because often savory will need something like perfect. Like they'll take the broccolini stems, but not use the florets. And then it's like, well, they're perfectly good. It just doesn't maybe work for this dish. And then pastry will sort of come and we'll figure out how to process it again. So I think that kind of challenge or that way of thinking has made my cooking so much better Um, and not just being like I need to buy this I need to have this but more just being like well what else can we do here Natasha Pickwitz thanks for joining the Taste Podcast thank you so much here's Anna talking to Athena Calderon and Kristen McGlory So I thought we would start out by talking, Athena, a little bit about how you came to food writing. Your background is in interior design. I My training is in interior design, but I feel as though almost I felt a little bit, and I say this in the book for years, that I had creative schizophrenia because I would like jump around to so many different you know, creative outlets and passions. And um, while design was something that I loved, food was just the one thing that kind of brought everything together. And um, my love of gathering around the table, my love of um, developing flavors in the kitchen was something that became a creative outlet for me when I didn't really have a career at the time. I was a young mom. I was you know, 23 when I got married and 25 when I had a baby. And I was home alone a lot. And the kitchen just became this place of discovery and invention. I never knew like how I would use it or if I would use it, um, but for me it was both a creative outlet and also a social outlet because I would bring friends together. And just the more I cooked, the more I learned about um, a different flavors, seasonality, learning about you know where our food systems, you know what's what's important, learning where your food comes from, eating seasonally. So just as I dove more and more into my discovery with food. Um, I started to write about it. (laughs) And I wrote about it just not knowing who would read it, but mostly for friends that would come over for dinner parties would ask me for my recipes. And I started a Tumblr blog. 
And um, it was like part design tips and part food, you know, recipes. And it was just for friends. And um, it was the things that made me swoon. So that's where the name I Swoon came from. Um, and then just over time, it just, you know, gained, gained traction. And food just became where I, I focused all of my attention. And, um, and then, the, then the book. Kristen, what about you? Um, so I started out uh, my career as an economist. I, I graduated from college with a degree in economics and, and a minor in writing and editing. Um, and the easiest jobs to find when I got out of college were in economics. So I did that for a few years. And I realized that I, um, I just thought about food all the time. I was sitting in my cubicle and really not not connecting with the work I was doing. Um, the first place I worked was uh, we analyzed car lease portfolios specifically. And I did that for two years <laughs> um, while I just kind of mulled like how I could possibly, you know, start to merge the thing that I thought about all the time with what I actually, you know, did all day. So um, I ended up uh I, I actually applied to work at Bon Appetit magazine a number of times thinking I have my editing minor. I'll, I'll, maybe I'll have a chance. And like, of course I never had a chance. So I just was racking my brain about how to, um, get into food media. And I ended up Googling food studies one day. Um, and I found the NYU food studies program, um, which is, a I, I did the masters there. So I moved out from California, did that, um, went to culinary school in the process and just you know, immersed myself in the world of, of food for as, as, you know, as much as I could in various kinds of media. And then when Food 52 was launching in 2009, um, it was right when Gourmet Magazine had folded. Um, so the, the industry was really in kind of a, a, a crazy place. It was the recession um, had just kind of hit home. So um, Food 52 was launching and it seemed like a good moment to take a chance on the internet. And I really like, I, I saw what Amanda and Meryl, my, my bosses at Food 52, were doing, and I thought they seemed like really funny, cool people. And I really admired the mission of being a, a website for home cooks and by home cooks, where the recipes were really coming from home cooks all over. So I, I've been doing it ever since, basically. Um, and in the process, I've been writing the Genius Recipes column, which turned into the cookbook in 2015. So, Can I ask you a question? Yeah, <laughs> sure. <laughs> So I didn't, never knew that there was a term food media. I just felt like I was so in the dark with mm -hmm. my passion with food that I didn't know that that exists. I didn't even know what a food blogger was. I felt like I, I came to this naturally like how, or organically and it, it unfolded and revealed itself. But how did you know there was such a thing as a career in food media? I didn't. That was, that was sort of the problem was I, you know, I thought about food all the time and I was like, I really, really want to go to culinary school, but I don't want to be a chef. Same. Yeah. Right. And, and so I, I didn't know, I, I mean, I knew there were food magazines. I knew there right, was right. that, but other than that, I was just kind of like stumbling my way toward. But that's so true. Stumbling. I mean, mm -hmm. I feel like we, I don't know, I can't speak for everyone, but I feel like I stumbled my way into mm -hmm. where I am right now and also learned so much along the way from other creatives. You know, I, you know, as I started cooking more, I started featuring other people on iSwoon and I would learn from them, you know, learn that there was such a thing as a food stylist and, you know, a, a prop stylist and uh, food photographers. And then just cooking alongside them, I was like gaining community and gaining knowledge at the same time. And I did take 
culinary classes here and there to like gain more knowledge, but I felt like I really learned so much from the people chopping side by side, you know, next to me. It's interesting that you mentioned writing mostly for your friends and for kind of like a small group of followers at the beginning, because I would say Food 52 also when it started out was really based around a community and kind of like a smaller audience. And now it's more like it's similar to Bon Appetit in that it's a platform form for many, many readers. Yeah, it, it, it definitely, it started out with this core mission of, of um, crowdsourcing a cookbook in 52 weeks. So the people that we first attracted were people who, um, you know, were really passionate cooks, were confident enough to write a recipe. Um, and so that was our, definitely our core in the beginning. And they powered our hotline answering people's questions um, when they ran into cooking issues. But yeah, we've, we've definitely grown since then. And our audience has kind of like morphed and, and we've attracted different people who aren't necessarily, you know, confident enough to write their own recipe, but love cooking. Do you feel like your writing has changed as it's gone from that smaller audience oh to goodness. having your entire community of followers? 100%. I, I, um, I realized probably for the first two years that I was writing recipes on iSwoon that I wasn't telling people what the serving size was. <laughs> like, <laughs> like I just, you know, forgot that bit of information, which is really important. Um, but as I wrote the cookbook, it just like amped up to a whole different level of you don't, when I write, you know, a recipe for iSpoon, especially as I was, you know, just figuring it out and felt like I didn't even know who was really looking at it, I wasn't paying attention to the order of ingredients or making sure that I was saying um, four or five minutes until golden brown or until golden brown four or five minutes. But when you're writing a cookbook, you have to be consistent. You have to make sure that, you know, the way... You add your, you know, you, the way you write out your recipes is the order that they're used. I had no idea, like no idea that that's the way you're supposed to write a recipe, even though I read cookbooks all the time. Like I, I just, I didn't know that. One other thing that I found interesting about writing for the cookbook is the, you, of course, you know, this is going to live on forever and you have to be so precise and make sure that, you know, everything is exact and cooking for me was always this like joyful expression of creativity of just like throwing shit together and you know like playing with flavors and you know bold kind of juxtapositions and you know something sweet and savory and spicy and um i felt like a little bit when i had to develop for the cookbook that i had to be so precise that i didn't have as much joy of the development process as when I'm cooking just for friends and family. And I feel bad saying so, <laughs> but I'm just being honest. Like there's such like a precision that has to happen that, you know, it's not as creative, I guess. That's Absolutely. interesting because Kristen's column and her book all comes from recipes that other chefs and writers have created that Kristen have, has found and sometimes edited and tweaked a little bit. But do you think over the course of writing this column and these books, you have become more loyal to recipes? Or have you kind of veered away from that intuitive style of cooking at all? I would say, um, I, I feel like I learned to cook mostly through recipes. And so I, 
I really, really respect them. I think when I first started cooking, I was like, I don't, I don't need recipes. I'm just going to wing it. But then I screwed up a lot. And so realizing like the freedom that comes from following a recipe and knowing that it's going to come out well, I developed a, a better respect for them. And in this column, I mean, I've, I've been living and breathing that ever since. Um, and I would say I, the only changes that I make are just to add my own like tips in my experience. I'm, I'm generally not changing the spirit of the recipe. These are Dory Greensman's cookies that are up there. They're not my cookies. If anything has been changed, it's only just kind of like a, an extra tip that maybe she didn't have room to put in her cookbook or that sort of thing. Are there any recipes in your book that sort of have structure that comes from other chefs' recipes or from restaurant dishes that you really like that sort of have evolved into your own dishes? Yeah, for sure. There's... Um, There's a braised pork ragu in Cook Beautiful that, have you guys all been to Aldila? It's not, it's not so far from here. But anyway, we've been eating there for like a good 15 years, like before my son was born. And they would have this special, it was a braised pork ragu with pakari with a dollop of goat cheese. And I literally, I also learned how to cook through following recipes. I was like an obsessive um, Epicurious reader where I would read reviews from like 15 different people before I decided what, re- like, I, clearly I had too much time on my hands, but <laughs> I, um, I started to find different ragus and I must have made at least 15 to 20 different braised pork ragus from like the best of the best chefs and none of them tasted like Anna Klinger's from Aldi La. And one day I just asked her for it and I made it for Christmas and I was like, this is going in my book. And I, I did change it here and there because I wanted to make it my own, but I credited her for it and, you know, wrote the story of, you know, of finding it that way. But I am a firm believer that we are all inspired by one another. Like I'm not going to take someone else's recipe and call it my own, but I will be inspired by someone else and, um, you know, gain a better understanding of different flavors that I really like working together. I I really like, um, like spicy fruit salads in summer with like briny flavors. Like I like spicy and briny and crunchy and textural. And I feel like I learned a lot of that from Dan Kluger at ABC kitchen. And, um, again, like when I make a recipe that reminds me of somebody else's or it was inspired by someone else's, I'll, you know, always credit them. Are there techniques or building blocks from each of your books that, you find yourself using again and again in different contexts and in different dishes? One of the overarching themes of my book was because my background is in design and I'm so super visual, um, the editors that I was working with at Abrams really wanted me to find a way to parlay design and visuals into my cooking. And I think they were just looking for a new angle. Um, And I kept right. So every one of the recipes has what's called a swoon tip, which is this, some sort of visualization, like way to elevate the visual presentation of your food. But I didn't want it to be like this fussy book where like everything has to look pretty because it's about the food. So I kept thinking about when I went to, I didn't go to a full culinary program, but I did a 200 hour technique course. And I just kept thinking about all of these techniques that the home cook sometimes doesn't know that I learned when I was in a professional kitchen that just like cracked open my brain like oh of course that makes sense like getting an ice bath ready next to your pot or next to your sink before you go and shock your green vegetables because if you shock your beans and then you go to get a bowl and you go to get your ice and then you shock them they're already overcooked so 
you know, I feel like there's there's certain techniques like that or um, not overcrowding your pan when you're roasting something is not going to give you like a beautiful golden sear on your like smashed potatoes or popping your you know, pan in the oven first. Like, there, I feel like there's, like, certain things that I got so excited about, like, being a home cook, but then learning some of these, like, more culinary-focused techniques from the professionals that I really loved that I was excited to share to the reader. So while the tips might somehow have an end result that are about the visual, a lot of them are also cooking techniques. And for me, like, they kind of go hand-in-hand. Hand. Have you found that people have really responded to those little pulled out tips, the ice wind tips? I don't know that it's been a thing as much as <laughs> Abrams wanted it to be. <laughs> the reason I ask is because um, when after the Genius Recipes uh, book came out, people did seem to really zero in on these genius tips that were pulled out from uh -huh. the recipes. And I was so surprised by that. I mean, I think some of it is, um, you know, the fact that they are pulled away from the recipe, they're very digestible, they're memorable. But my favorite part in, was actually these little quotes from the original authors that I just found very charming in reading their recipes that, um, you know, the presentation, I think, was much more quiet. It was these, you know, just little quotes. Um, it's just a little dash with their initials, so you don't even necessarily know that, like, R.O. is Richard Olney or whoever it may be. But though, I thought those added so much color and whimsy to the book, and no one ever mentioned them once. Oh, okay. <laughs> Can you so give us an example of one of them? Oh my gosh. I'm only thinking of ones from the new book right now. Oh, okay. <laughs> Sorry. If, if you want to give us a preview. Sure. <laughs> um, so for example, like Roberta's parsley cake in the new book, um, which is published on Food 52 as well. It's this like neon green cake that's loaded with um, an oil that has parsley and mint blended into it. And so there's just this little quote that says, you know, anytime there's green in the garden, it like stumbles over into our desserts. That's a paraphrase. That's not exactly it. But I just love having their voice present from the original cookbook. Um, and sometimes they're funny. Sometimes they're like, you know, just something that you can relate to or just, you know, realizing, oh, here's why there's a parsley cake in this book. I was also going to ask if there were any recipes in your book that you were really surprised that sort of took off or that more people wound up cooking. Yeah, recently, my Italian grandmother, whenever I was sick, she would make me this, you know, chicken soup, like I'm sure all of our families have their own version. But I'm shocked at how many people are making this soup just because it's so simple. It's just, you know, a whole chicken, a whole slew of vegetables and water and just cook it for a really long time. But with tons of pecorino and parsley and um, yeah, I've just, I'm, I'm in awe. Actually, all the chicken dishes in my cookbook have just taken off. And there's one recipe and Goop, Goop featured it in their Thanksgiving um, kind of recipe guide. Uh, but I actually posted on my Instagram twice, and both times it's gotten more likes than any image I've ever posted on my Instagram, like ever, ever. Um, and it's a roasted beet and blood orange uh, salad over a bed of yogurt with tarragon and um, hazelnuts. And it's super delicious. I really love it, but I'm I'm shocked at how like people have responded to it. Yeah, what do you think it is about this one recipe? It's really visually beautiful and I think that it's hearty because it has golden it has golden and um, red beets but then it has the you know brightness of the blood orange and I, I think sometimes it's hard to like find that zippy bright flavor in winter foods um, just because you know a lot of our foods in winter are a little bit more muted 
um, and heavier. So I just think it's like it's light and it's hearty, and I think it speaks to both like people that are vegetarian, but also you know meat eaters. What about you, Kristen? Were there any sleeper hits or just kind of surprising hits? Hits. Hit, hit. um. Yeah, any hits. <laughs> Um, so I was, I was very touched that, um, we have a couple Facebook groups. Um, one is the food 52 cookbook club and one is the food 52 baking club, which was like a a sort of rogue offshoot of the cookbook club. Um, and the, the cookbook club, uh, did voted to do genius recipes for their December book. So this massive group of, of Facebook, um, members, who may or may not have ever heard of Food 52 before, but they stumbled onto this little mini cooking community, cooked along with Genius Recipes. And it's always interesting to see what they latch on to because it does seem to sort of like, you know, people are posting photos. And so the photos really seem to drive what people are excited by. So, you know, there were there would be waves. Like one person would post um, Dan Barber's cauliflower estate. You cut um, slabs from the middle of a head of cauliflower and then you take all of the rest and turn it into a puree that it sits on top of. So it's very striking seeing, you know, the it kind of looks like an oak tree that's very beautifully browned. So as soon as one person posts that, then the whole club seems to go into a frenzy about it. And um, the granola, I mean, the granola, the genius granola that's um, it's from Nikesia Davis of Early Bird Foods. That's been like an all timer. Um, I've made it like a hundred times, <laughs> yeah. probably. If you haven't made that granola, you should try it. Wait, I have the funniest story. Yeah. <laughs> when Nikesha used to be a manager at Franny's, and I kind of hold Franny's in such a high regard as inspiring my cooking style so much. But Nikesha was a manager, and my son was probably five or six at the time and she had him taste test it for like the for her very first batch <laughs> he wow. actually taste tested and then it's just been amazing to see her take off and it's yeah anyway he must have given some good feedback i think he gobbled it all up <laughs> now i think each of you styled your own book is that correct yes did you so <laughs> i was wondering if over the course of styling the book and working with a photographer, did you did, were there any like sort of styling trademarks that you realized that you each had, like any eye spoon, any spoon tips that you use <laughs> in almost every dish? I mean, I really like some fresh herbs sprinkled over just about everything. A zest of lemon always tastes good on the palate and looks really pretty. Um, not food related. I, I tend, I saw that I tend to, for summer and spring, just because I was working with natural light, I liked to fill glasses and have like the water kind of cast shadows. That was really pretty. Um, and I, I really love coming from like a visual background and studying design. I, I, I'm always thinking about the composition of food on a plate, um, what color plate I'm going to put it on um, so that it pops, what surface I'm going to put it on. One of the overarching themes of the book was um, it's a seasonal cookbook. uh, And I started to think about what each season looks like visually um, because I think the way we eat and what's happening in the outside world are kind of, you know, working in tandem. So the way I styled winter was kind of dark and moodier and um, kind of lush and layered, similar to kind of soups and braises and roasts and the cozy, more cocoon-like environments of when we gather with friends and family in winter. So I just started to think about, like, what, what each season, what color would be attached to it. So summer was, like, 
like nude kind of sandy tones and blues from the sky and um I started to notice, you know, what's happening in the markets in spring, and there's just so much greenery popping up through the earth. So, like, in the book, a lot of the surfaces are white with a lot of, like, green palettes. So um, I really I really tried to kind of understand what um, seasonality tastes like and what it looks like on the page. What about you, Kristen? <laughs> um, for, the, for the first, the Genius Recipes cookbook... Um, I had been styling food and prop styling the column casually since it started. And I really did not know what I was getting into with the cookbook. So there's a mix of photos that we had taken. um, The James Ransom, our longtime photographer, had taken um, for the column. And then we kind of mixed those in with new ones that we shot just for the book. And also our style was sort of evolving as we were shooting the book, too. So like on one page, we might have just a single pan or a single bowl with not a lot of environment going on around it, not a lot of like lifestyle propping around it. And then by the end of the book, you can start to see mixed in some other ones. Um, but the reason I laughed is just because I, I mean, I had never styled a cookbook before. I really, I, I didn't know what, what to do or what, what to expect. And so I remember being so excited, um, I was, you know, texting James, like, James, you're going to freak out. I found all these ceramics. We're, it's going to be such a great shoot tomorrow. And I had rented from a prop studio, like six ceramics. And like, now that I see what our art director who actually knows what she's doing, how many props she'll rent so that she has lots of good options and can like, um, you know, just make every dish look the best it possibly can in the moment. Maybe the one she thought was going to work doesn't, and she switches out for something else. I didn't have that option. And so I think when I showed up with, you know, with my six bowls, James was like, okay, well, we'll figure this out. <laughs> Are, is there a difference between styling food for a website and styling it for a book? Like, what are the things that you have to keep in mind? Well, we at Food 52, we pretty much have all of our props there. Um, our art director, Alexis Anthony, has collected them, you know, at flea markets. And we have the ones that we sell in our shop that we kind of mix and match in there. And for everything we shoot for the site, that's pretty much what we use. Um, and we just kind of like gradually grow that collection. But for a cookbook, because you're wanting every page to feel different and dynamic and and you know to to if you're wanting to you know express something about the seasons or about like this is a fancy dinner party versus this is just like a humble like quiet breakfast you're having you want to have a lot of options there for you so that's when we do the cookbooks we'll have props covering like every surface around and all these folding tables out so that is the one big difference for us i also um you know as i developed each of the recipes i photographed you know, what, what I was making, obviously it didn't look like it does in the book. It looks much better in the book, but, um, I thought it was really interesting making sure that I communicated to the photographer and the rest of the team, you know, how I wanted things to look and feel. So, you know, I went and wrote notes, you know, for each of the recipes, like I want this to be in the pot with two bowls. I want this to be, you know, this pork chop to just be like a single pork chop, like really clean, not a lot of, you know, environment around it. So, um, a lot of, a lot of what I wanted to do for the book was in my head and I found it really kind of interesting working together with, with a whole team of making sure I communicated what I wanted and how I envisioned it. And, um, I the first couple of days of working on the cookbook, I, I I never worked with a photographer before, even though we had like many friends in common, and um, I found myself to be like 
a little like meek or shy when like something was happening that I didn't really like it. Like if I didn't like the lighting or, you know, I had a, a prop assistant and if they put, you know, something out that I didn't like, I was like, um, maybe do you think, you know, perhaps we should try and do this or that. And I realized like being passive aggressive just was not working and you need to be, you know, this was my, this is my baby, you know, like I really knew exactly what I wanted it to look and feel like. So until I kind of like found my voice and was more assertive, you know, it just went so much better once I, you know, was really clear. That was like a big learning lesson. I learned so much about myself throughout this cookbook process, like a ton. Do you think you'll write another book? Maybe a chicken-based book? (laughs) Totally. (laughs) I'm actually, I just met with my editor. I have a second book to deliver that I'm going to start working on this spring. God help me. (laughs) For both of you, what were the things that you learned this time around in your books that you want to bring to your second book? Kristen's working on a book about genius desserts. What are some of the things that you want to fit into the second book that you didn't in the first you know, looking back at the book, there are a lot, there are things that I'm really happy with how they turned out and they were worth the struggle of the many rounds of editing and, and all of that. And then there are other things that I'm like, okay, I, wow, like that bowl of grits, like I couldn't have put like anything else in the scene. It's just a bowl of grits. Okay. Like that, that, that sort of thing. You can't help but look back, but it also, it does feel so good to get it. Um, cause you know, you send it off to the printer and then you don't see it again for three months. So you have this break away from this thing that you've been living and breathing. I imagine you probably had a similar experience. I did. And I was really surprised the whole editing process of a book. Um, I don't know if everybody knows this, but it's all done like on the page, like for, for all of us that live in this digital world where, you know, we're sending back files. I mean, this, there, there is, it's fully analog. I mean, you are just writing all of your notes and circling things and crossing and editing. And, and then when you hand it off, you don't have another copy of it. So when, when you get this second draft, did you find this? When I got my second draft back and my third draft, I was like, I I wanted to see those initial hard pages to kind of like compare and contrast. And there was one phase where I had to start slashing words again to fit on the page after I thought I was done and I turned everything in and that was really heartbreaking, but you can't change that process. You know, it is, it is what it is, but, um, I think I would write a little bit less, I like throw up on a page a little bit (laughs) and then somebody has to like you know call me and pull me in a little bit so yeah the second book that I'm working on is not food though it's it's design it's about interior design so um I think it'll be more more visual less writing all right well thank you all so much for coming and make sure you buy some books and have them signed thank you The Taste Podcast is hosted by Anna Hiesel and me, Matt Rodbard. The show is produced by Gabrielle Lewis. Studio recordings by Pat Stango. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Interviews are recorded live at Books Are Magic in Cobble Hill, Brooklyn, and at Penguin Random House Studios in Manhattan. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>